you want to take your Bibles and turn to Acts. So, you know, as we've been going through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, line by line, there are some parts of Acts that are just really super exciting. And some parts of Acts that you think, wow, this has been really cool. Uh, I wish I could have actually seen that. I wish I could have been there and experienced that. And then you get to some passages like, what in the world is this about? And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, as I was reading this a couple weeks ago, getting ready for today, I'm thinking, so there's really no deep theological or doctrinal statement involved in this week's story. As this part's, and I got to thinking, Lord, what is it that you want us to draw from this? It's the next passage, and we're going through this, and I know the Acts is just stock full of, of truths. And what is it in Acts chapter 10 that you want us to learn? And then God just began to speak. And share some simple things that if you're not careful, you just walk right over it. And so we're going to draw a couple of those nuggets out this morning. And, uh, but before we do that, I just want to challenge all of us. It's so easy to come to church every week, isn't it? I mean, we get up, that's what we do on Sundays. That's what we do. We get up, we take a shower, we get dressed. At least I hope you took a shower, put your deodorant on. And you came to church, you, you smell good, and you know, remember we're all part of the body, and some of you got armpits and feet, and you know, we're all part of that body. And you know, we're, we come here and we want to be encouraged by one another and edify one another and build each other up. And then all of a sudden, pastor says, turn to the book of Acts, and it's like, oh, I read that before, and we go coast mode. I hope that we come ready for God to speak to us. I pray for that every Saturday. I know it's, I should pray for it every day. But especially on Saturday nights as I come over here, and uh, you know, some weeks it's several of us, some weeks it's me, myself and I, so three of us. And uh, so <laughs> we pray, and we're praying that God would work in our hearts and our lives and draw us closer in and teach us what He wants us to know. And, uh, but I hope that we come with a prayer of expectation saying, God, teach me. Even if I've heard it before, even if I don't understand it, God, just open it up to me. Right? Can we do that just for a moment this morning? Let's pray. As we get started and ask God to work in our hearts to draw us closer to Him, teach us what He wants us to know. Let's pray. Lord, thank You again for this opportunity to come and to be challenged from Your Word. Lord, we thank You that there are no wasted words in Your Word. I pray, Lord, to, to say thank You, Lord, for every one of them. And Lord, how You put them in Your Word for us so that we might know Your heart and Your mind. And so we know how to live for You and to please You and, and to learn from others, Lord, what You'd have us to learn. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would humble us. Lord, that we would might be humble in our attitude concerning ourselves. Lord, that we would truly, Lord, be honest about where we're at in our walk with you. And then, Lord, that we would be willing to be obedient and change the things that need to be changed with the help of the Holy Spirit. So, God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read the first... Uh, well, I'm just going to start reading from Acts chapter 10, beginning of verse 1. And then I'm just going to draw out some things, probably the first uh, half of it anyway. And as we've been going through this line by line, I, I just want you to say, hey, how does this apply to me and my walk with Jesus Christ? So, beginning of verse 1. It says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called Italian cohort. Some of your translations may say regiment or Italian army or brigade. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household. And gave many alms to people and prayed to God continually. 
About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had come and said to him, Cornelius. And looking intently on him and becoming afraid, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is lodging with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were of personal tenants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's just stop right there just for a moment. You know, as I said before, there are no wasted words in God's Word, right? He tells us exactly what He wants us to know. And I think the best thing that we can do as we read through God's Word is say, how how does that apply to where I live? How does that apply to my walk with Jesus Christ? And as I began to ask these questions, several things came out. So first of all, what do we learn about Cornelius? Who's Cornelius? Uh, He's not a guy that you see a lot of in Scripture. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. But there are three things that God's Word does tell him. And remember, I asked this question last week. How will we be remembered? We talked about the lady named Tabitha, or also her secondary name, Dorcas, and how she would be remembered. She hadn't even been barely dead of just a little while, and all of a sudden all the ladies were taking out all the things that she had made and gave to her and praising her for what she had done in her life. And we asked the question, how will you be remembered? What will be your reputation? Will it be one who have someone who walked with God, someone who lived for God, somebody who was selfish or proud or arrogant? How will we be remembered when we go home one day? Well, we see three things about Cornelius that really all of us have to not only emulate, but desire to have in our lives. And so we see right away in verse 1, or I'm sorry, verse 2, he says, he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. So that's the first thing. He was a devout man who feared God with his household. And you say, well, what does the word devout mean? It's amazing because when I went and just did a simple synonym study of the word devout, 44 adjectives came up. (laughs) I thought to myself, can all these really mean devout? And I got to thinking, what are the ones that are most popular or most familiar with me? And I came up with three things that, that were synonyms of the word devout. And the word devout really means faithful. He is a faithful person. And when I think of somebody who is faithful, I'm thinking about somebody who is a man of their word, somebody who shows up on time, somebody who does what they said they're going to do. They're a person of integrity. They're a person who does what's right. They're honest. So they are a faithful person. Uh, number two, there was another word that described the word as a synonym to devout, which meant sincere. Sincere. Uh, I think we've all known people who appear to be sincere, but they'll say one thing and then do something else or do the opposite. They'll say one thing in your presence because they, they think you want to hear something or they think you want to know something. So they'll say it because they think, it, they think it's going to make you happy. But in reality, they're not really sincere. But to truly be devout, you must be sincerely sincere. Then number three, they're fervent. Fervent. In other words, they kept going. They're not quitters. And so when I think about Cornelius, I think, well, man, just from the get-go, the very fact that he was a devout man, I want to be like that. I want to be a man who's like Cornelius. I want to be a man who is faithful, a man who is sincere, a man who is fervent in, in my actions. But why was he able to be those things? Because he was a man who what? Not only f- uh, devout, but he was devout in that he feared God with his household. 
In other words, he walked with God. And we'll see more about that in just a moment. But he walked with God. You know, it's so amazing that in this world that we live in, we see like two sides that are almost extreme opposite of each other. You have one group says, yeah, if you have, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you have the other said, no, I'm not a Christian. Why would I want to be that? And it seems like we have these polar opposites. But when it really comes down to, are you truly a believer? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you living Christ out in your life? Well, that's a new subject. That's another subject. Are you truly one who fears God and says, I am not going to participate in this because that's an area of sinfulness that I don't want to be a part of my life. No, I'm not going to listen to that because it's going to cause me to have wrong thoughts. No, I'm not going to talk like that because it doesn't honor God and it doesn't show that I want to be holy and righteous. I'm going to actually live it out. I'm going to fear God because what God's Word tells us in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. I want to be one who walks in wisdom, so therefore I'm going to fear God along with my household. So in other words, he didn't just you know, live it out personally. He lived it out in his family, and his family walked with God because of his example. That was the second thing, or the first thing. The second thing is this. He was a man who gave many alms to people. We see that also in verse 2. And gave many alms to the people. You know, in other words, he was not a selfish man. He was not selfish. You know, it's amazing how some people will give you the shirt off their back, as the expression goes. They'll do anything for you. They're very giving. That's their gift. That's their nature is that they want to help out wherever they can. They'll give whatever they want. They want nothing in return. They're just givers. This is a man who gave many alms to people. And the idea behind alms is that he gave money to help those less fortunate. He gave money to help those in need. And I just have to admit, in my day and age, I struggle with that. Anyone else? You see the sign, we'll work for food or water or whatever? And I'm thinking, there are 8,000 jobs all over the place. Go find one. Isn't that what we want to say in our minds? Anybody else? I'm I'm honest. I don't want to deal with that. But that is a wrong assumption because we begin to stereotype that they're there because they have made wrong choices. They're there because, well, they're just, you know, it's not that they're less fortunate. They just keep making poor choice after poor choice after poor choice. And we don't think to sit and... I mean, have we ever just stopped and talked? Well, no, that's dangerous. They're going to pull a knife on you. I mean, isn't it amazing how we start to stereotype and we conjure up in our minds what's going to happen? I mean, because we know that's what's going to happen, right? We just know that. Well, how do you know? We, I just know. And we distance ourselves from people who have needs. Unless it's in a really super nice, safe environment like church. Then we can give. No, there's more accountability there. But how often do we just give because we know that God has encouraged us or burdened us to give to someone in need? And maybe they're not from our church. Maybe they're not from somebody else's church. But there's a need that's been made known. Cornelius was that man. He gave. And the whole idea behind alms to people is the idea that he gave to those less fortunate. He gave to those in need. And then there's a third thing that we see about who he was. And that's also from verse 2. Towards the end of it, it says, And prayed to God, what's the word? Continually. He was a man who prayed continually. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I work from 8 to 4, so I can't really pray in there. Uh, I mean, when I get home, I got, I got chores to do. I got to get ready for this and get ready for that. And I, I got to get the yard mowed. I got to get... I, when, when am I supposed to do that? 
how does he pray continually? Well, what does 1 Thessalonians 5 remind us? Pray without ceasing. In other words, we're in a mindset that we can pray no matter where we're at, no matter what we're doing, no matter who we're with. I can't tell you the number of times that I'm with somebody and I'm praying the whole time I'm talking with them. Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your understanding. I need to know what to say to this person. I need to, and the whole time they're talking away and I'm just praying. That's praying continually. That's saying, Lord, I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you my speech. I'm giving you my mouth. I'm giving you my mind. And God, I want you to work through it. He was willing to pray continually. How about if we just stop right there and say, well, there's, there's, a, there's a good sermon for one day. Three things about the life of Cornelius that I think God to put in my life. A devout man who feared God with his family. A man who gave alms to the people. And three, a man who prayed to God continually. Wow, what a lesson that would be, right? But he doesn't stop there. So first of all, we see who Cornelius was. Now we see his vision beginning in verse, uh, really verse uh, 23 and following, or 3 and following, but let's just look for a moment. He says, In about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had come in and said to him, Cornelius! And looking intently on him and becoming afraid, he said, What is it? Who? Lord. I mean, amazing, isn't it? I mean, he knew who was talking to him. And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before me. Uh, What do you think God was saying there just for a moment? As he was saying, your prayers and alms, he said, what a memorial. It's something to be remembered, something to be honored. What is a memorial? A memorial is, is something that is given to be remembered, right? We have memorial services for people who pass away so that we can what? Remember who they were and praise God for what they have done, right? So he says, your prayers and your giving has gone up as a memorial, In other words, it's something to be remembered. Something to be honored and respected. I got to thinking about that. Do I pray in a way that it would be remembered? I don't even really know what I'm saying by that. I'm just saying that I wonder if I pray in that kind of a way. That it's so important to me that I, I pray consistently, continually. And God would say, your prayers have gone up as a memorial. Something that needs to be remembered. I know this. When I was in 8th grade, uh, God allowed me to be around a man named, by the name of Garland Cofield. He has since passed away. He is with the Lord. But I remember so vividly and clearly when Garland prayed, I felt like he got a hold of heaven. I felt like when this man prayed, the whole earth should just stand still and listen to him. He was that kind of a man who demanded respect because of who he was and because of how he prayed. I remember thinking as a junior higher, thinking, I want to pray like that. Oh, he wasn't these and thous and this. He was just a man who just poured out his heart to God. I remember thinking, wow. And then he says, not only have your prayers, but he goes, your gifts have gone up as a memorial. Have I ever given a gift that's worth remembering forever? Does that strike anybody else as odd? A gift 
that has gone up as a memorial, a memorial being something that should be remembered and honored, have I ever given that kind of a gift? I don't think I have. I think the most valuable thing I've ever considered giving was my life. I said, God, you can have me. You can do whatever you want with my life. I'm yours. Do with it whatever you please. Allow it to be here for 100 years or allow it to be here for 50 years. It's up to you. It's yours. But other than my life to God, I don't know that I've ever given anything that would be remembered as a memorial as it went up. Cornelius is starting to become a pretty cool guy when you start thinking about it. Let's go on here. So your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now God assigns him with a task. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon who is also called Peter. He is lodging with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, as I said a week ago, I've been to Joppa. I've seen Joppa. I've seen the house of Simon the Tanner. And I remember thinking to myself, this has got to be a nasty place in the summertime. Tanner, using human urine to do his job, nasty. Add to that heat. Flies. Ugh. But beyond that, you know what's interesting? God knew exactly where he was. God knew where, si- or where Simon Peter could be found. And he told Cornelius and his men to go get him because this is where he's at. And I remember thinking, God knows where you're at. He always knows where you're at. He is lodging with Tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And here's the thing. Every time God gives us a job and a task at hand, we have a choice to make. Every single time. And here's the choice. You're either going to do what he tells you to do or you're not. It's really that simple, right? You're either going to go, well, God, do you know what? I mean, Lord, do you know, I mean, to go down to Joppa, I mean, you really want me to go way over there? Do I have to go there? I mean, I'm comfortable right here where I'm at. This is where my house is. I really don't want to go to the house of Simon the Tanner and go into that nasty, stinky, smelly place and find this Peter. Why do I have to go there? I'm more comfortable here. Anybody ever felt that way? I have. Why was he to go? One reason. God told him to. That's it. God told him to. I mean, think about it. Why? Does the why really matter? Huh? No. It doesn't matter why God told him to go. He just says, go. And here's what I find the struggle in my life is that I want my way. And God wants his way. What's more important? God's. So God knows exactly where he is. He tells him to go there. And so verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, 
Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. And while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven open, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners through the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky. And a voice came to him, Rise up, Peter, slaughter and eat. Wait, wait, stop right there. Quit looking, quit reading. Stop reading. Stop. Some of you got to keep reading. Stop right there. Think about this vision he is seeing. Is there any one part of it that makes any sense whatsoever? So I'm in a trance. And I'm seeing this vision. A big white sheet comes down with four corners being layered to the ground. And inside this sheet there's all kinds of animals and birds. Yeah, this ain't weird at all. Slaughter and eat. What? This makes no sense. For years I've read through this passage and I'm like, what in the world is this about? This makes absolutely no sense to the human brain. What kind of a... This is not a dream that I would dream. I don't think anyway. It might be one that you have after indigestion and eating a bunch of pizza and, you know, have a stomachache, but, but, but what in the world is with this vision he's seeing? Weird. So, a voice comes to him, Rise up, Peter, slaughter and eat. What do you think Peter's response was? No! No. You know, here's the interesting thing. Peter had a problem of telling God no. Did he not? Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. John chapter 13, verse 8. I won't take the time to go there. But Peter has this history of telling God no. You think he would have learned a few things by now, right? No. No. <laughs> Right. But isn't it amazing how we can know who God is, to know that God has our best interests in mind, He wants what's best for you and I as His children, and then yet we in our flesh say, no, I don't want to do it that way. I mean, I'd rather go to Olive Garden and sit down and have a nice meal. I'm not about to slaughter and eat these animals inside this white sheet. Nope, not happening. Or Longhorn or anywhere else. Am I making you hungry? But Peter just looks at him and says, no. I mean, look at it. He says, he's hungry. He's telling him to rise up and eat, verse 13. But verse 14, Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything defiled and unclean. Wait a minute. That became error. It doesn't matter anymore. That doesn't even hold any weight anymore. Why? Verse 15, again, a voice came over him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer considered defiled. And this happened three times. Three times God had to get a hold of him. Three times! He said, well, God, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not doing that. I'd rather go and get some, you know, McDonald's. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Question. Does everything that God tells us to do have to make sense? I mean, think about it. 
How many times in Scripture has God told somebody to do something and us looking at it, being a fly on the wall, a mouse in the corner of the room, somebody who's just an outsider looking, did it make sense? I mean, did, did it make sense that God would appear to Moses out of a burning bush? Wait a minute. There's a bush on fire, but it's not burning. Does anyone else see this? Because nobody's going to believe this. It didn't make sense. Did it make sense that a donkey would speak? No. Did it make sense that an axe head would float? No. Does half the things... Abraham, just go. Well, go where? Just go. I'll just go to where... I'll tell you when to stop. Does that make sense? I mean, let's put that in today's vernacular. Get in your car and drive. Well, drive where? Just drive. Well, how far am I supposed to drive? I'll, I'll let you know when you get there. Well, Lord, I've been driving 14 hours now. Where am I going? Just keep going. So many times God asks us to do things and what we would do, rather than saying, okay, Lord, yes, Father, we want to know all the details. We want to know exactly what's going to happen. What's going to happen when I get there? We want to know all the details. And bottom line is, that's not what God has for us sometimes. So three times while he's having this vision, He's trying to get a hold of Peter, and Peter is just flat out saying, "Uh uh-uh, nope, not having it. And finally, as it says here, verse 16, and this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into heaven. And verse 17, as we would expect, while Peter was greatly perplexed in his mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. So all of a sudden, he's in this trance. God's telling him to slaughter and eat because he's hungry. He's saying no. God's trying to get him his heart, and he's just fine. Takes the sheet away, and all of a sudden, the men who were with Cornelius are there. And they're calling out, verse 18, asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for him. Now, isn't it amazing? Just, once again, just kind of rationalize this in your mind. Why is it, well, in one vision, he's sitting there telling God no, and is not believing that God is telling him to do what God is telling him to do. And then on the other hand, he's in a vision, as as he's reflecting on the vision, the Spirit says to him again, three men are looking for you, and he says, okay. Because one of them made sense and the other one didn't. Right? And we tend to agree with what we can understand and fathom in our mind and make sense of while we disregard what doesn't make sense. Just keep that in the back of your head. So verse 20, But rise up, go down, and accompany them without taking issue at all, for I have sent them myself. Why is it that he can believe one thing but not the other? And Peter went down and to the men, and behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was directed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. So here's three men he doesn't even know, but on the word of what they say, come on in, (laughs) Join, join, join the house, come on, come on in didn't necessarily make sense, but he believed God on this one. But when God said slaughter and eat, he didn't believe God. So then, in this last little section here, what happens? So on the next day, he rose up and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. 
And on the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up! I am too and just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man defiled or unclean. Only those animals that you told me to slaughter and eat, not those. Verse 29, that is why I came without even raising any objection when I was summoned. So I asked for what reason you have summoned me. And Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is lodging at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been ordered by the Lord. You know what I see when I see this whole story? I see two men who are flawed, but two men who are spoken to, and they had choices to make. Cornelius, I believe because he was a devout man who feared God, one who did give alms and pray or give alms to help the people and who prayed to God continually, he was a man who was willing to do what God told him to do. Even though it may not have made perfect sense. Did he know what Peter was supposed to tell him in four days? No. He didn't know. All he knew is that God had told him to send for this man and tell him to come. And meanwhile, while, he was, while his men were there getting Peter and summoned him to come back, he was gathering people at his household. Because when Peter got back, his place was full. And now we're ready to hear what we're supposed to hear. He was willing to be obedient and to do what God had asked him to do without questioning. Peter, you see his humanity as well. God told him to do something. It's like, uh, no, that doesn't make any sense. We got next. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, we'll do it. And then he goes and he prepares to share whatever it is that God wants him to share. And what I see in all of this is a test of obedience. Are you going to do what God asks you to do? There's other things there. I think to myself, I was like, wow, let's apply this to churches for a moment. Pastor's coming back in seven days. He's going to be doing something. He's going to be sharing a message from God. Meanwhile, I'm going to fill the house till he gets here. That's a cool analogy, right? Let's, let's go with that one. Next week, I want the place full till I get here. No. But here's the bigger issue. Every day, if we're like Cornelius in a relationship with Jesus Christ, Walking with God, we have opportunities to obey or to not obey. Like Peter, I, I appreciate just for a moment his humility. Whoa, whoa, whoa what, stand up. Do not worship me. No, I'm just a man like you. I appreciate that his, in his humanity, he was humble. In his humanity, he was humble enough to stay in a stinky house of Simon the Tanner that had to have reeked. 
in his humanity. But can you still say he was obedient? He goes back, this journey back to Caesarea and allows God to use him to speak to whatever it is that he was supposed to speak of. Every day we have a test as to whether or not we are going to obey God or not. Just a simple story. You think on the surface could have walked right, right through it and not even gotten anything out of it. But then you start looking at it every line by line. I want to be like Cornelius. I really do. I want to just one who just blindly follows no matter what because I know that God doesn't make any mistakes. I know that God's not going to lead me in the wrong direction. Amen? Amen. I believe that God's only going to do what's best for me. I want to be like Cornelius. But oftentimes I find myself like Peter. I obey when it makes sense. Not all the time. I want to be like, uh, God, no matter what, I'll do it. I don't understand, but I'm going to do it. It doesn't make sense, but I'm going to do it. And God, I'm going to let you use me no matter what. It's a test of my obedience. Who do you find yourself like? Cornelius or Peter? Maybe you have some characteristics of each. I don't know. But the bottom line is, one last passage, just for free. Uh, Luke 6, if you would turn there, just for a moment. I won't even charge you for this one. I can't charge for any of it, but... Luke 6. When we think of obedience, God gives us a word picture here. And I think it's a word picture that every one of us can understand and in our minds fathom and see it. But he starts off with this question, verse 46. Now why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Remember, here's this test of obedience here. He says, you're acting as though you're my child, but you're not obeying me. It's a fair question, right? I mean, after all, if you've got a certain kind of Bible, you've got the red words, those are the important ones, right? They're all important. But Jesus is asking a question here. Why do you call me Lord? And don't do what I tell you. Because that's a, that's a problem. And here's the word picture he gives us. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug and went deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the river burst again that house and could, against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who heard and did not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the river burst it against it and immediately collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So here's the picture. Two houses that were built. One has a foundation, the other did not. What's the foundation? The one that had a foundation is the one who heard the word and obeyed. The one that did not have a foundation also heard the word, but chose not to obey. Both of them suffered a river coming against it and bursting against it. One stood firm because it's a foundation of obedience. The other one did not stand because its foundation was not there. 
What describes your life? A foundation that is standing sure because you've chosen to obey or one that is constantly being battered by trials and difficulties and, and hardship because you're choosing to also hear but disregard and not obey. One will stand firm and one will not. And the one that stands firm is the one that hears and obeys. That whole story about Cornelius and Peter is one of obedience. What would characterize your life? You and God know that answer. But maybe this morning God is saying, I need for you to obey. I need for you to do what's right for what you know you should be doing. And each of those choices have consequences. One's going to stand firm, the other one is not. Lord, I pray, Lord, as we come before you, Lord, in these closing moments, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that we would be honest with ourselves as we prayed in the beginning, Lord, of whether or not we're truly obedient, whether or not we're truly walking with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be honest and humble. Lord, it's easy to say I'm pretty good. It's easy to say I obey most of the time. It's easy to say that I'm a pretty decent person. But God, those aren't the questions. The question is, are we obedient in everything that you ask us to say and do? So Lord, I pray you help us to be honest. And then Lord, I pray that if there's some things that need to change, Father, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts and help us to be willing to make those changes. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just ask for a moment that no one be looking around. The question is, are you obedient? Or has the Holy Spirit convicted you and that still solemn voice is saying, there's some things that need to change. There's some areas that need to need some improvement. There's some things that you need to obey me in. Maybe it's a step of faith. Maybe it's a you know, opening your mouth and talking to someone. Maybe it's giving to a need. Maybe it's serving the Lord in some capacity. I don't know what it is. Only you and God know what it is. And you know the areas that you're making excuses in. But this morning, God has challenged you to take a step in your obedience. Say, Pastor, that's me. Would you pray for me? With uplifted hand, just pray for me. Yes. 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 All over. Yes. Thank you. In the middle there and in the back. Yes. Can I just challenge all of you who have raised your hand just for a moment, just right there where you're at. I'm not asking you to get up. I'm not asking you to go anywhere. I'm just asking you right there in that moment. God's Word tells us in James, to him that knows to do right and doesn't do it, it's sin. So in order to have forgiveness of sin, we must confess it. That's First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So can I just challenge you, if you've raised your hand, your heart towards God this morning, just take a moment and say, God, please forgive me for not being obedient in all these areas. God, forgive me for choosing to say no in some of these things that you've spoke to me about. God, forgive me. And when you prayerfully say that to the Lord and with a right heart, God says, I will forgive you. So far as the east is from the west, so far that you remove those sins from us. Just take a moment and say, God, please forgive me. Help me to be obedient. Help me to say yes every time the first time. Just take a moment and talk.
talk with Jesus just for a moment. Let's all stand to our feet. Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. You know the very things that distract us, Lord. You know the very things that we use as excuses as to not obey. But God, I pray that you'd help us to be like Cornelius. We didn't question, don't rationalize why we don't have to, or don't justify why we didn't. Just simply say, yes, Lord. And I pray, dear God, that you'd be with each and every one of us in this room this morning, Lord, that we would be faithful and obedient to all that you ask of us. And that we might see your hand at work in our midst, Father. And we'll praise you for doing just that in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.